Well, good morning, church. You guys sound just as lovely as the first service. So looks like they set you guys on for a good trajectory. How about that, right? That's how the body works together. Um, hey, real quickly, before uh, we begin and we, we jump into the message and I tell you a bunch of stories and you laugh a lot and, you know, we have this really great dialogue, or at least I'm going to assume we are going to, um, I want to take a moment uh, just, to, to, just to pray, um, just to take a moment to, to really uh, prepare our hearts for, for what God has to say with us, because I think with this message in specific, I think it covers a lot of, um, a lot of us in here. And so could you guys pray with me real quick and we'll, we'll, we'll get started. Sound good? And so Heavenly Father, we come before you right now and uh, God, I'm going to be the first to admit, Lord, that, um, you know, sometimes we sing the songs that we sing and really we, we don't take the time to reflect on perhaps what they mean. God, these were declarations of just how amazing, how wonderful, how beautiful and glorious that you are. God, these are the words that are found in your word. These are the things that, the, the attributes and, and, the, and the things that we describe you all find their foundation in your word as you've revealed to us. And so uh, may we continue that declaration now as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, hey, it's really great to be back uh, in the pulpit this morning. It's been, a, it's been a little while, I think probably July, back when the last time I taught, we were in uh, Matthew 11, and I sold you guys on Jesus's uh, ability to, for us to put our yoke upon him and that he would make our burden light. And really, the cell isn't a cell. It's, it's the truth of God's word right there. Jesus does say that in Matthew 11. But the, I think the fascinating thing, well, at least for me, maybe not so much for you, is that it seems like it's gotten a lot harder since Matthew 11 uh, and since we've studied and, and been through, uh, going through the, the gospel of Matthew. And so uh, one of the neat things, though, and, and I want you guys to see this, that the gospel of Matthew, since that point on, these are God's invitations to you to submit to him, to walk with him, and to be with him. And he assures us that he'll make our lives light. But that doesn't mean that it's going to be easier. As some of you probably have already guessed or have heard so far. And today's no exception to that as well. And so as we kick off this morning, I want to ask you guys one question. Have you ever, and I'm going to ask you several, so humor me a little bit. But have you ever met someone in your life that is so inflexible, so stubborn, so stuck in their beliefs in ways that if they're wrong, they continue to fight, argue, and dare I say become a bit confrontational? Surely, Surely none of us have met anyone like this before, right? Like I'm the only one. Well, if you're looking for this person, I have the opportunity for you. So when I, when I thought about this question, um, my, first, my first thought was when I was a service advisor at 18. And for those of you that may not know what a service advisor is, I am the professional in this, in this standpoint to describe the service advisor. And so a service advisor stands as the in-between for the customer and the mechanic at a repair shop, right? It's the individual you'll go to and be like, hey, this is what I think is wrong with my car. 
mechanic gets it. He's like, actually, this is what's wrong. And then I go to you and say, this is what's wrong. And then you yell at me. And this is whole dialogue about that goes back and forth. And ultimately it does lend itself to some money being paid. But anyway, that's, I digress. Needless to say, this is where I thought or where I went when I thought about this question. Uh, so I was 18 and, and I had the beautiful privilege of being uh, promoted into this uh, wonderful opportunity you know, they sold me on, hey, if you want to get yelled at all the time, if you want to be called a liar, if you want to tell people precisely what is wrong with their vehicle, only for them to reject it and come back later more frustrated because the $100 service is now thousands of dollars, this is the job for you. <laughs> and so at 18, at 18, I'm like, sure, why not? I mean, the sky's the limit here. Or for three months when I realized that it wasn't so great. And so I'm telling you, this was the first image I got about these strong-willed and stubborn people. I'm sure we all have individuals like this in our lives. Or maybe, maybe, maybe it's just my life. Maybe God has just blessed me with seeing this more often. But we all know these types of people. They disagree with any opinion. They disagree whether it's right or wrong and will continue to reject any suggestion, tip, or input, even if it's made painfully apparent to them that their way is wrong and the other way is right. And so do you guys have anyone right now? Anyone want to tell me who? No, I'm just kidding. And the crazy thing is, is that we find the same thing in the church as well. I know, huge shocker. People have opinions in the church. But I'm telling y'all, and that's my southern emphasis, mine, that the church is rifled with these feelings, with these attitudes, and with people like this. We see this with the following, worship music preference, pews or no pews, uh, colors that are used throughout the building, bulletins or no bulletins, and maybe that one's getting a little close to home there, and more. And so we can laugh at some of these things, but in all seriousness, if we're not careful, this kind of mindset, this kind of attitude, this kind of posture can have some pretty significant consequences. And how do I know this? Well, if you've paid attention over the past month or so uh, in the series that we're in, we've seen three pockets of religious leaders fight Jesus. They've fought him, they've tested, they've pressed, and they've attempted to chip him up because they were not pleased with his methods, with his model, and his message. Why? Because it pressed against their positions, their thoughts, and their lifestyles. Well, that doesn't sound like us. And as we've seen, instead of submitting, they have bucked up and fought even harder to prove him wrong so that they could finally do something about it. Send him to the authorities, have him arrested, and ultimately have him killed. And so with this as a backdrop, I invite you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. And as you turn there, I want you to consider yet another question. What would your life and your witness say about your thoughts concerning Jesus' greatest command? I'm confident that many of us have heard Jesus' greatest command before, whether it's in, uh, in ch children's church or maybe just at some point in your life in church, you have probably heard a message about this. Um, and I want you guys to, to, to think about this question because I would like to suggest that and, and, and ask you to see how this informs your walk with Jesus. 
Does it amplify how we care for those around us? Or are they spinning a different story? One that ultimately takes the look off Christ and looks more at me and what I'm doing compared to others. And one that eventually rejects the completed work of the son. I want us to consider this question because I believe much like this group that we'll study today, we are just as guilty. Many of us, perhaps, I don't know how you did it, but maybe, just maybe, some of us in here skirted by the past few weeks and didn't find ourselves in the text. But I assure you, if I were a betting man, this is the group we would see ourselves in today. If we take a vivid, if we look clearly, I think this passage is going to give us a vivid glimpse, glimpse into our own hearts. Because we're talking about the Pharisees. And so you might recall Kevin's message from a few weeks ago, but the Pharisees were obsessed with the law and upholding a high standard of law keeping. You see, outwardly, they looked incredibly spiritual, but inwardly, they were incredibly corrupt and shallow. It was saddening. You see, they were well-versed in the scriptures, they maintained rigid moral standards and ultimately wielded these standards to judge those around them. And do you see why now that I said it's going to be probably relatively easy to find ourselves in this passage? If we take a good look at ourselves, we look more like the Pharisees than we think. And so prepare yourself. Prepare yourself as we look at this dialogue between the Pharisees and Jesus beginning in verse 34. I invite you to join me there. This is what the text says. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And so you, at this moment, you have the Pharisees who are like, gosh, the Sadducees just got shellacked. They got beat. They got totally told off. All right, guys, let's get together. And so they, they begin to conspire together. And they're like, all right, we're going to send our guy. This is the guy we're going to send out. And so they send this gentleman who, based on the text, is an expert in the law. If you look at the other gospels' accounts of this story, uh, we find out that this person is a lawyer. And so, essentially, this is like their ace card. This is their A player. If there's anyone that would be able to hold a dialogue with Jesus and to build up a case that would ultimately discredit his work and his words, this was the guy. And so they send him and he meets with Jesus to test him. And we're not talking about uh, like a law entrance exam, which, I mean, if we're honest, that would really stink if that was the case. Or even a spelling test, which maybe for some of us would also equally stink. No, this is a test that is literally meant to trap Jesus uh, in an effort to disprove uh, his authority and his credibility. It's a trap. And, you know, when I read this, I always think of kind of like gotcha journalism, right? The sum total of gotcha journalism is to catch people in lies and deception. Anyway, there's clear intent with why they're sending this guy. This is their gotcha man. And as he begins to speak with Jesus, did you notice the text? He kind of comes up really friendly. He's like, hey, Jesus, teacher, teacher, teacher. Well, if you've paid attention over the past few weeks, we know this isn't sincere. So why do you do it? Well, he did it because he knows that Jesus has accrued a massive following. 
They don't respect him. They just know if they go straight at Jesus, they're going to have a massive chaos on their hands. I mean, there's thousands of people following Jesus, and so they're just trying to be polite. And as he goes to Jesus, he finally asks him this question, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Big surprise, right? Guys that love the law go to the law. But why would they ask this question? Remember, the Pharisees and scribes, this is their bread and butter. They are passionate with following the law. They were so much about the law that it's recorded that they had over 613 plus laws that guided their life. These are the guys that were all about it. In their eyes, there was no superior law. They saw them all as necessary for their walk with Christ. They saw it necessary for identity, for piety, and for religious dignity. And this is precisely why in Galatians 5, uh, verse 3, Paul emphasizes that to, to, live out the, to live out the law, you have to live out the entirety of the law. You see, for the Pharisees, it was either you're all in or you're all out. But what they would do is divide the commandments into the laws, uh, commandments in the law, into the light laws and the weightier laws. And so what I don't mean by that is that they saw these two, uh, these two groupings and said, well, these are weightier, therefore we're just going to follow these. No, they followed them all. Again, they see these as all necessary and all uh, important because they were established by God. But what they would do is, well, these ones really, really matter. And we're not going to press you too hard on these light ones. We're going we're gonna to advocate for this. We're going we're gonna to make fun of you if you don't do this. But this is what will get you killed. And so they're doing that here. And isn't it interesting that this group was so proud of themselves, check this out, so proud of themselves that they thought they could determine the nature and weight of a law, a law established by God. Sounds pretty ridiculous. And if they didn't like it, they would discuss it with one another to determine whether or not it was weightier or light. And so when we hear this question, there's a good chance that they themselves have asked this question, you know, among their groups. Hey, guys, which, which law do you think is the greatest? Which would seem, in their world, kind of innocent, but that's not the point. That's not what they're asking Jesus here. So the question comes up again. Why did they ask their question? Well, it's like your, your kids, uh, when kids ask their parents who their favorite child is. And for a parent, sure, they struggle with this. I mean, in my household, we, my family all knows I, I'm the favorite son. So minus the Vesquez household, most households struggle with it. Because we know that there's some type of agenda or angle that's tied to it. We know that's not the actual question that they're asking. And that is what they're doing right now. You see, this lawyer initiated a discussion that might lead anywhere and that, in his view, would certainly provide a possibility to discredit Jesus and discredit his reputation. They were setting up Jesus for a no-win situation. If Jesus picks outside the commandments, they're going to jump on him. If he chooses the lighter law, they'll argue that it's insufficient, They were letting ambiguity play as their best friend. You see, they believed this would give them the grounds to bring accusations against Jesus and taint his movement. And let's remember, this isn't just like Jesus and like five people. 
This is like Jesus and thousands of people. And they're trying to discredit his ministry and his work. They didn't appreciate it. Let's remember that Jesus had captivated thousands of people with his message, methods, and model for following the Father. And so these restless attempts were to a trick to, to, to have Jesus into an answer that would discredit him, either with the authorities or the general public. But the problem is, is that these guys are asking a question that they're ultimately going to fail in building a case against Jesus with. Look with me at verse 37. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so notice that Jesus doesn't flinch or hesitate in his response. He doesn't hesitate in the, in, in the slightest. In fact, he points them to the heart of the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6, 5. You see, Jesus sees this as the greatest uh, law uh, found. And he chooses this text, uh, a text that calls for the whole person to love God and adore God. This text would have been recited uh, daily by pious Jews and would have been incredibly familiar with the Pharisees and by and large, the general public. This passage urges the nation of Israel to love God with everything. Why? Because the Shema summarized the heart of God's covenant with his people. Essentially, what this Shema describes is that Yahweh alone is Lord, and covenantal faithfulness to him involves every part of one's being. It means you need to be all in and devout. And so this is like a phenomenal passage for Jesus to choose. Not only is it familiar to the Pharisees, but the general public knows what this passage is. It means I am submitted to his rule and reign and delight in it. The general public would have known that. And yet Jesus isn't finished. He adds another caveat in verse 39. Did you see it? And the second is like it. It's not saying it's less. It's not saying it's more. It's equal. And so Jesus introduces a second law that would have been found all throughout the Pentateuch. It's, it's, it rests in Leviticus 19.18. And it's this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. To truly love God with all of his being must and will love others. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus sees these two, these two laws as inexplicably joined. They can't be divorced from one another. To live out the first will be reflected in the second. Because wholehearted devotion to God means seeing other people as God sees them, as objects of his love. And so why would Jesus choose these as the greatest law? It's the greatest because it reveals God's heart and unveils the religious leaders' tainted hearts. You see, this group would have thought that they were living out this law with a neighbor. You see, at that time, the Pharisees would say, oh, surely we're following out this labor. You know, our neighbors are all devout Jews. So certainly we're following this rule. We're following this law. Yet, as we have Jesus viewing the temple 
court. Jesus says, hey, these are your guys' neighbors, and beyond these walls are your neighbors. And this is something Jesus has been doing all throughout the Gospels. I'm not making this stuff up. You could go through the Gospels and see this. According to Jesus, neighbor includes those inside the synagogue. It includes family. You remember the whole healing of Peter's mother-in-law? Yeah? Family members, those who were Gentiles in the marketplace, the lepers, the paralytic, the sinners, the tax collector, yes, even the religious elites. And according to Jesus, this also means that without the second, they fail at the first. This insight is why the gospel writer John in 1 John says that if anyone says he loves God and hates his brother, he is a liar. So imagine being there right now. Just imagine how convicting that would be to hear. Especially to a group that touted their religious observance over people. Especially for individuals that prized the rules over the person that helped them live out the rules. And like I said at the beginning of the message, and I'll say it again, I am afraid that we do the same thing as well. Who in here, and you don't have to show your, I'll show my hand. Well, I'm going to put my hand up. Who in here has compared themselves spiritually to another person? Which if we're honest, you're not going to, it's not like me going to Rick and being like, oh man, Rick is way more spiritual than I am. I'm going to be like, oh, I'm going to compare myself to Nico. Cause you know, maybe I stand a chance there. We never, we never go higher. We always go lower. See, I'm sitting up front. But who in here does that? It's always someone that's less spiritual than we are. Who in here has pointed to their self-righteousness and used it to judge others? Who in here has uh, compared themselves uh, or has neglected the awkward employee or wayward barista because they don't fit into our version of Christianity? Who has ignored a neighbor, literal, or a family member, or has belittled a fellow believer because morally, because they're morally inferior to you? Yet according to Jesus, these rules are what the law and the prophets testify and point to. The heart of the written, spirit-filled testimonies from Moses to Malachi claim the symbol of complete devotion expressed in our care for others. All that they wrote was founded on this foundation. Love God and love others. And somehow we have messed this up. Jesus is saying that it is only when we love others that we can genuinely obey the law. And that without love being the motivator, we don't know what really understand what the commandments mean. In one way or another, all the commandments are expressions of God's love. And don't you guys see it? Do you understand that God spoke these laws to us because he delights in us? Love is the motivator here. He has literally set the model for us. And for some reason, we have said, nope, this becomes the measure by which I judge those around me. How messed up is that? And so what's the point? Our relationship has never been about law-keeping. It's always about letting God's love for us motivate our hearts for him, which is displayed in how we care for others. And so how does this reject the Pharisees' teaching? 
Again, these guys lived in a pattern that allowed pride, elitism, and legalism to become the measure by which God's favor was earned and deserved. And they used this conclusion to chastise people that didn't conform. They rejected the notion that any other lifestyle fits the call from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Yet Jesus actively fought against this pattern. Jesus modeled a heart for the Lord, witnessed in his care for others. It's why Jesus lived in perfect obedience. He was all about his father's business, and we became the beneficiaries through his death and resurrection. Don't you notice that the gospel is literally the outworking of the greatest command? He died, served, so that we, the neighbor, can live and sit in the same place as him, with the father that's the greatest commandment here. And unfortunately, many of us still try to live in the same pattern as the Pharisees. We understand that Jesus calls us to love as he modeled for us, but we repeatedly go back and, and, and ask, oh, well, what else? Or if we're honest, we go to Jesus and be like, look it, I'm taking that love and I am beating people upside the head with the truth of your word and judging them because that's what love is. And that's not what it's about. It's never been about that. Do you realize that that is a, a stain to the message of the gospel? This is because by practice, we live like the Pharisees. We rejected Jesus' greatest command that love for God impacts my love for others. And much like this room, as we return to the text, the Pharisees are stunned. They don't know what to do with this. They're silenced. And it's not a surprise because this has been the pattern, right? Every time these guys get enough confidence and, and bravado about themselves, they're like, all right, we can get Jesus now only to get slacked and, and beaten down. But the only difference here is that Jesus now begins to ask the questions. Go ahead and join me in verse 41 to see what I mean. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied is really interesting. And so caught speechless after this incredible response from Jesus, the Pharisees lack a rebuttal. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to ask them, them some questions. And so he asks them two questions. And these two questions are both related to the Messiah. If you have uh, certain translations would, would have Christ here instead of Messiah. But just know that ultimately what Jesus is getting at here is he's trying to have a conversation about the divine one to come. And so he begins with this question. What are your thoughts about the Messiah? And so you, Jesus employs the same kind of vague, open-ended uh, question asking that the Pharisees did with him. Except this time, he's actually asking them something that they ought to know. Certainly these law keepers, these Pharisees, ought to have some ideas or inklings about this, this, uh, this Messiah that was to come. And so Jesus, being kind and gracious, gets a little bit more specific here. He asks, whose son is he? And for you and I, this question might seem a bit odd. It's kind of like, okay, you went from asking the Messiah to the son. How did, how did we get here? 
but it has everything to do with their thoughts about the Messiah. See, this question captures their thoughts on who he'll be and what he'll do and how he'll arrive and more, which is why the response is immediate to him. They respond, well, surely it's the son of David. How do they know that? Because the Older Testament consistently points to this reality. It acknowledges it. And so they're not wrong technically. The problem is, is that they mean a physical descendant of David. They mean an earthly child of David. They mean a literal physical lineage of David's earthly life and reign. Do you notice what's missing in there? There is nothing mentioned about the divine side of the Messiah. Oh, they get the physical. I mean, there are historical documents that point to this reality. For example, the Psalms of Solomon suggest a descendant of David's line would arise, would gather people in revolts, throw off the Roman yoke, and restore independence and theocracy. In fact, this hope was most common at the time of the Jews. See, they accepted the physical realization of the line of David, but they never got the divinity of the Messiah. And this is where Jesus is preparing to deliver his knockout punch. It's where he's about to end their accusations and the treatment he has received from the minds of the religious elites. But let me be clear. Jesus isn't rejecting their conclusion per se. On the contrary, Jesus fully understands that the Old, T- the Old Testament's uh, affirmation of the text He knows the Messiah is going to come from the line of David because the prophecies speak to this reality. But the difference between Jesus and his opponents is that he knows too that the Messiah is so much more than the sword of deliverer the Jews were looking for. And this is where he goes next in verse 43. And in classic Jesus fashion, of course it's a question. Look with me at verse 43. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And so if the Messiah is no more than a prince, Jesus is essentially asking them, explain Psalm 110 to me. Why does David call him Lord? Why does he call one of his kids or great descendants Lord? And so Jesus draws attention to this. It's the basis of his argument. And you see, for you and I, maybe God in his providence knew that we would still struggle with this sometime. And so in Psalm 110 in your Bible, it tends to have uh, right above it a subtitle that says Messianic Prophecy. I'm a, if I, again, if I were a betting man, God is just being very gracious to us to notice it. But at this time... They wouldn't have considered this a messianic text, which I thought was wild. If David calls him his his physical descendants, Lord, how is it that he is a son? Because the one whom he's calling Lord is someone David worships. And so if you see me around with my my son Henry, uh, I love him. He's way cooler than all of your kids. Thank you. I knew you guys would agree with that. (laughs) But there is no way, shape, or fashion that I'm going to worship that little guy. It's just not going to happen. He steps into mine and my wife's life. But imagine what it would look like to worship him. I I mean, there would be Mickey Mouse all day at my house and Cheerios galore. 
But I'm getting off point on this. And so what's Jesus doing here? Jesus is doing several things at this very moment. First, he's working on expanding their minds to see the son more than a political leader. And to see him as he is the son of God. And so Jesus leverages a a, a practice that would be commonplace at this time. He highlights two things that are assumed true. And he presses these religious leaders to make sense of them all. And secondly, in doing this, Jesus is further amplifying that the son of David comes from the father of creation. And that's him. Which leads to Jesus' final shot here in the text. Jesus clarifies that he is the son of God, whom Matthew knows to be exalted to the right hand of the father, where he shares God's rule and reign over the world. And this Lord would not first arrive as a mighty warrior that they thought he would be, but as a humble teacher, a redeemer, one who would love the Lord with everything and lay down his life and die to liberate those who are ensnared and enslaved to death, sin, and shame. That's what he would do. And it's with this strike to their teachings that the Pharisees joined the list of those bested by Jesus. Look with me one final time at verse 46. No one could say a word in reply. And from that day, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Which if we were all honest, we would be in the same boat as well. We'd be like, yeah, I think I'm good. I think you've done pretty great. You see, the fear of further debate suggests that their silence was a damaging admission. It's obvious what, uh, what answer Jesus implies, but no one was able to answer him a word because the question was not just an academic one posed by Jesus. Do you see that? See, to answer this question is to accept his arguments and to recognize him as something greater than David. It would mean that uh, they would have to either reject their idea of the Messiah or reject Jesus' teaching. And so the silence suggests that that they chose to reject Jesus' teaching and thus him. In the last of these challenging questions, Jesus repeatedly waved off their attacks by answering them with resounding authority. In addition, his questions froze his would-be opponents and highlighted Jesus' role as hero and king. And this isn't anything new from Jesus. We have watched over the past several weeks Jesus do this over and over and over again. He fought the battles about the laws and the commands. He, he dealt with the, the issues related to the resurrection and marriage and more. And I mean, if we looked at the entirety of the gospel, hasn't that been the point since the beginning of chapter one? Yet if you're like me, you're left asking, why do they still fail to believe? Why do they, did they not believe in him when the testimony of his words and his works are so powerful? And the answer is this. They have chosen to believe a lie yet again. Again, we've seen Jesus over the past several weeks address all of their their issues, yet rejection continued to follow and the hardening of their hearts continued to solidify. First, they rejected his pleas and commandments. And now at this very tail end, they are rejecting his role as the son of God. 
And if we're honest, our lives are no different. I believe many people want to see a different version of Jesus show up so that they can be affirmed in their decisions, their actions, and their attitudes. Yet Jesus has made it clear that he will not conform to what we want him to be, but he invites us to conform into who he's called us to be. He's called us to be reconciled children of God, brothers and sisters, a royal priesthood and more. But it means we need to reject our ways, reject our attitudes and reject our preferences and proclivities. If we can't do that, I'm afraid we are no better than the people we've talked about the past few weeks. And Jesus, I assure you, Jesus will not take this rejection lightly. You see, these religious authorities have blinded their eyes to the truth. They willfully turned away from the one who came to reconcile them to God. And I assure you, as the Lord allows us to get to chapter 23 next week, the woes are about to come. And so what are you going to do? Let today be the end of rejecting the real Jesus for the skewed version of what we want Jesus to be. You can do that today. Perhaps you're still seeking out, asking questions, or seeking some reason to reject Jesus. But here's the thing. Your rejection doesn't end his pursuit of you. He will have the final say. He isn't in a match that he can lose. He will be victorious, and he invites you to say yes to him in the middle of that rejection so that he can build you up to look more like him every day in every way. And church, this is the rejection the world needs to know. Let's pray.